I'd like to take a little bit further on the contracts and commitments because I believe these are critically important issues in this room today, as in a room of any American businessman I deal with today. Now, the kind of contracts we go with that we normally get involved with are right here. And I'm talking about employment contracts. Remember, our yes is yes and our no is no. And so I'm going to suggest to you that as a businessman working for a corporation or working with other organizations, that when you accept a promotion to a position of authority or responsibility, you have basically told them that they can depend on you. I'm sorry, you cannot hear me? Am I not turned on? I am turned on? Oh, well, just tell the guys in the head to shut it down. So we have a commitment by our word. As you work for a corporation, as a Christian, when I say to you that you can depend on me, you can depend on me, I want to tell you guys that is critically important. Now, irrespective, by the way, irrespective of how the world operates. Now, in my life, I have had the exposure to a number of people dealing with with this problem veil in other ways. And I'm going to talk to you about these five areas. These are my five experiences which will lead you to application or insight that I think it touches everyone in this room. Now these are only from my experience and you could add to them yourself. I have a friend that in his youth got into a condo in Dallas. Looked like a good business deal with him at the time and he was advised that he could make money by getting into this condo. Uh, he uh, signed on for the contract with this uh, situation and did some very smart things like had a negative uh, depreciation of his note, those kind of things, a really crisp thinking on his part. But he got into this contract, which was not really a good financial contract, with really good intentions because he thought it would appreciate in value. And when he graduated from college, he would be able to cash in on this and go away from it. Well, what happened was when he graduated from college, the bottom fell out of the Dallas market. And he ends up with a condo in his hand, and he gets transferred to Atlanta, Georgia. And he is getting beaten to death with this contract. He's making a modicum of money, and he's getting hit, eaten up on that. Plus, now he has another house. So he sought some Christian counsel on what he should do with it. He wrote the people, the lease people with the, uh, that, had, that owned the paper on his condo and uh, asked them for adjustments, asked them for hearings, asked them for uh, a chance to discuss it with them. And you, understand, you know how compassionate those guys were and how they immediately wrote back and said, how can we help you? <laughs> they didn't. They beat him up soundly, as you know. They ignored him. And so he sought some Christian counsel on what he should do. And the counsel came back that what he should do is quit making the payments, force them into a court of law, at which time he could get resolved the issue because it is better to steward what you have than the contract. They will not discuss the contract with you on reasonable terms. They will not discuss the contract with you in meaningful ways. And so the way to do it is force them to the fore, get them in a court of law, and then you can get it resolved. Because you must steward the small things you have. It is stupid stewardship not to drive them into court. And I'll say to you guys, we make a lot of decisions like that. It's interesting to me that if the property had doubled in value, that he wouldn't write them back and say, since it doubled in value, why don't I double up my note for you? Because you deserve some more. Or by the way, the interest doubled, so let me write you back. I'll just pay you more interest. 
It's always if I win, we go. If I lose, we talk about it again. Stewardship does not give you license to breach contract. Second issue, I have a friend that's lost his job. Entity had a he had an employment contract, and it had a non-complete clause in the contract. And he was an executive on the corporate staff, and they had a downsizing. And he got removed. And they gave him a very nice severance. It was a reasonable severance, but it wasn't enough meaning for a guy to give him 20 years of his life working away. He felt a little bit missed by the deal. And he has, as you well know, struggled to find another job. That is to be accepted in this marketplace. And one of the guys kept talking to him, saying, look, you know all the leads where all the market is. Come on over with me. I've got a competitive product, and we can move in on that marketplace, and we can hit a home run. And he says, no, I have a, an employment contract. And the guy said, yeah, but there's no legality to it. He will not stand up in a court of law. There is nothing on those employment contracts that will stand up. Now, how many know that's a true statement? They're not going to stand up. And therefore, since that's not since that's not true, and by the way, since they let you off, by the by, it's only legitimate for you to seize the advantage and go after it. And yet his yes is yes, and yet his no is no. And morality says that he is under obligation, irrespective of their performance. And legally, he has a right to run it up the wall. But the question is, morally, is that what he should do? Today in this marketplace, we have people who divorce their wives on the grounds that they cannot be happy with the woman they're married to. Happiness is the single greatest cry we have. I read an article recently that the difference between the Japanese and the Americans is the Japanese seek pride and the Americans seek happiness. I don't know how true that is, but I think there is a great observation that everything we're pushing for is happiness. And we justify the laws of God under the context of happiness. So irrespective of the commitment or the contract to our marriage, in the name of happiness, because God would not have me unhappy. And don't ever forget that. I have a right to divorce this woman, or she has a right to divorce me, because it's only legitimate in my few short years that I can be happy. And so in the context of our contract, we breach them in our drive to be happy. <clears throat> In Atlanta, we have a record number of bankruptcies. Historically, we've never had as many bankruptcies as we've had on a personal level as well as on a small corporation level. And then it is interesting to discuss it with the guys because they're getting advice to get all you can and hide it as much as you can so when you get to court, they're not going to be able to find it because you've got to fend for yourself. And the only prudent thing to do is to defend for yourself and protect yourself. Irrespective of what the contract is and what you hold the people, scour off the top and hide it because you must take care of yourself. You know what is right and you will come back and probably make it right later on because you're the moral one and they're not. So hide all you can because it's only the prudent thing to do. And remember, you may not really owe them that money. Things didn't go right on their side as well as on your side, so just walk on out of it. And by the way, when the legal court says you're exonerated of that responsibility, remember, that's okay. Because legality equals morality. And the only prudent thing to do is turn your back on the contract. Fend for yourself. 
protects you and your family. Oh, you've got to protect your family. And go hide all the assets you can. Instead of dependence on God, it's prudence with what I have. And one thing I've experienced in my life a lot with guys, and most of you are not corporate men, but I experience with people. I see this all the time. These guys are working for corporations, and they got a better deal around the corner, and so they go job hopping. And it's only just that I can leave because it's up to me to fend for the family. It's up to me to develop a good career because by developing a good career, I'm in a better say, position to meet the needs of my family. And it is true, right, that my, uh, my purpose in life is to what? To be able to produce for my family. That's my job, isn't it? I must create all the goods for the family, and it's up to me to keep my focus on that. So I must create a good career, and so it's timely to jump from this job to the next. Did you give them a warning? No, but I did give them two weeks. Well, what job do you leave? Well, I'm managing 50 people, and they'll get another guy. Because in this market, it is everybody for himself. And it's only legitimate that I can job hop. And I will put my name with uh, search firms and not tell my bosses I'm doing that. I'll accept the promotions, but not tell them I'm looking for another job. Because it's only right that I look for, for my career, because nobody else is doing that. It's only legitimate that I fend for myself because it's a tough world out there. Instead of being dependable, instead of letting your yes be yes and your no be no, instead of operating with the fact that you know God's on your side, instead of operating with the fact that you know God's signing your contract, you're out there defending for yourself all the time. And so you do confuse legality with morality. You do confuse what a commitment and a contract is. And you start to set up patterns which, guys, God will eventually create justice in. One of the hells that are going to break out on America is the family life of what we've done to the kids with all the divorces, all the broken contracts and the silly, silly things we've done. And it's going to come back and roost on the kids. It's roosting on them to now and it's going to roost worse in the future. And as a Christian, it is going to be tough to do business in the marketplace. That is a true statement. You are handcuffed because you're going to be men of morality. You're, inhib you're limited and inhibited because your word is yes is yes and my no is no. And it is going to be difficult because they can depend on you. And this is going to be tougher because other guys are cheating and stealing, and you're not going to do that. You're going to be open about what things are, and you're not going to hide resources and hide issues. You're going to go face into the issue. It's not get all you can and can on your get and poison all the rest. It is being a man of God in the marketplace. The W or the L is not the issue. The win and loss is not the issue. The issue is the glorification of God. And in knowing the issue that we have just reviewed, that 500 years later, a contract that was defraud, was uh, fraudulent. A contract that God did not want, that God said is so important that since you made the deal and you're my man, I'm going to fulfill it. I think we've got to take those things very seriously. Okay? Any questions? See, I cover it so thoroughly, Walt, they never have a question. No, 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 big hitter. No, 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 bunny rabbit. What do you want? Gail, there, uh, this, uh, this whole issue of integrity as opposed to accuracy, uh, I have less trouble with that in my interpersonal relationships than I do in the world. For example, I fly a lot, and as you know, that I save a lot of money by crisscrossing my tickets. Now, I don't know. There's nothing in the contract that says that I cannot do that. That's not a violation of the law. 
I uh, saved two-thirds by doing it. Instead of a $900 ticket, I get a $300 ticket. And uh, if I went to the United Airlines and said, I'm doing this, what do you think? Take a note. I would, I would surmise that they would say to me, no, no, that's, that's not why we wrote the rule. We don't play it that way. If you uh, go out of money and come back on Tuesday, you ought to buy that kind of a ticket rather than crisscrossing your tickets. Pay the $900 instead of the $300. So I don't ask, but what I am doing is I am being manipulative. I am being less than upfront and honest with them. I don't know if the airlines would care because they want to fill seats. That's their concern. Well, hold your second, Dan. I like that. Hold your second. <laughs> the, 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 the point, gentlemen, the point is not, can I second guess the airline as to what they would say? The point is, I don't ask them. The point is, I am not upfront on that. I, uh, and so I should ask myself, you know, should I go ahead and say, I, I will take that on up, and I'll, I'll ask them, how do you want me to play it, and then trust God for the extra $600 per trip? You answered your own question. No, I'm asking you to answer for me. I would honestly say this because we do the same thing in the business, is that the issue is that if you feel that it's right where you are, then you're going to get to answer to God for your decision. Now, I have gone up and asked on the issue. If you say, there is a chance that they think this is wrong, then what you've done is you've hidden and dodged integrity. You're lying to yourself. If there's a chance you think you are cheating them or putting the hooks on them, I don't think you're operating with integrity. Because I remember my kids, raising my kids, my kids always uh, answered the question, but they didn't answer the question. All right? They knew what I was asking, but they would answer another question. I kept saying, okay, we're playing questions. See if I can ask the right question. I'll just start asking around until I found the right question. And they knew what I was after. And I believe we had that responsibility. We've got to anticipate those issues as Christians. Because I do believe we'll be brought up on that. So whatever there's a question in our mind, you would urge us then to take the initiative and go seek it out. I think I would. Now, the answer is yeah, I think so. To that. Do you, when you register or when you make your reservations, do you do W. Hendrickson and then Walt Hendrickson? And it's all the same name all the time? Because I had a struggle with that in my travels all the time. I was doubling up tickets and yeah, see, you know, overlapping I think, them. I and, think this is an illustration, yeah. but what is the principle behind it? And that the principle is we're the person with the integrity and with the Holy Spirit and the power to get the thing done. We're the ones that should be working to make sure it's done right. I think that's the, the principle. I think that's our responsibility. I don't know who's next. Well, yes. I don't know how to do that, Walt. No, no, don't jump in. <laughs> <laughs> Walt, this concept uh, kind of strikes me at this point that uh, I think probably should be addressed. And then there's two sections in Scripture, but I can't think of where they come from. Maybe somebody else here would, would know. But it seems like these are all areas that, that are in, a, I guess, what you would call situational ethics. And I think where we get in trouble is where we start trying to put man's interpretation or our interpretation of this without seeking scripture, without seeking you know, fundamental guidelines. And, and I guess it would really be tough to, to find specifics in the word that would address all these particular issues. And I can think of two. Um, somewhere, again, in the Old Testament, there's some, some phrase made about blessed is the man who swears even under his own hurt. 
um, which I have taken to validate um, the importance of um, following out whatever you commit to contractually, even if it subsequently turns out not to be a good decision. The other is um, a statement that's made with respect to our need in which we have to be able to be um, accountable and a good steward of the small things before we can be entrusted in charge of the larger things. And if we can't manage those smaller issues, that's going to carry into the larger decisions we're going to have to operate that, was, that wasn't a question. Those were two declaratives, weren't they? Neither one of those were questions, were they? I'm sorry? Those were not questions. Those no, were just declaratives. Okay. Who else? Uh, many of us have made some real meathead decisions, whether we were Christians or before we were Christians, and they have some very long-term negative consequences. And many times you are faced with playing some of these consequences out, and when you do, sometimes you can... You, you say there's a right and a wrong way to deal with a certain issue. And maybe I can get out of this if I take bankruptcy or something. And we will decide, even as Christians, say, well, <coughs> even if I'm sinning, I'm going to take this route to protect my family. Okay? And, you know, I would say, it, if I hear you correctly, uh, this, is, this is very flawed logic. I mean, we may say, I mean, maybe I'll be dead and buried and gone and <coughs> taking it. Not only has harmed my integrity, harmed me as a, as, a, as a person of God, added to guilt, whatever, but my kids or their kids may still pay the price. As I read it. What I did as a media. As I read it. That is scary, guys. Now, that doesn't mean bad judgment. The issue is not bad judgment. Anybody can make a dumb judge. It is purposeful fraudulent action. That is the issue. God didn't, if you made a stupid move, you made a stupid move. God didn't say, well, that's a dumb move. We're going to count that up against your kids. He didn't get on to Joshua because of the contract. You don't see any issue about the contract. No, I'm saying a dumb move that you then did a purposeful fraudulent or whatever thing to spare your kids the consequences and your family. You did it saying, I know that, but my love for them is greater than my fear of a sin that I'm going to make for and we still may not spare them. I, I, I think we have... See, I don't think there's anything wrong with declaring bankruptcy. This is me. <coughs> the issue is, though, even under bankruptcy, that does not exonerate my responsibility to pay it back. Now, my problem with that, Chuck, is this. On this side of bankruptcy, that's all clear in my mind. I'm a good guy. When I go through bankruptcy, I'll pay those guys back. On this side of bankruptcy, all of that logic gets fuzzy. So I suggest that if you're going through a situation where it's going to be a meat grinder and the situations are difficult, I would surround myself with guys of accountability. Document your commitment before God as you enter into the carter so that you on the other side of the carter, when it gets to be a different, when the coin gets flipped over, you remember where you are so that you can go back and refresh your mind before God what you're going to do and get it done. I think the Bible says, I'd rather go to my grave trying to do what is the, what's the issue of integrity with God rather than be a shrewd operator that came out leaving my family with a lot of money. I think it would sit better with God's contract system. This, this subject scares me to death, guys, because I'm never more than six months from bankruptcy. 
I've never gotten that way in my entire life. All i got to do is turn the chips the right direction, and I'm out of business. I know that. And am I going to be willing to live with those things? I talk the game very well on this side. I just hope I understand it well enough to do it. What's up? Oh, has you got a question? Oh, I'm sorry. No, they're all doing it. That's the problem. <laughs> I, I know the sleazeballs. I know what they're doing. We had one back here. I have a situation where, uh, it's kind of interesting, just one of those things that just came to my mind, that I, I made a commitment sort of in my own mind, but I did not make that commitment to the person. And just like you were saying, that you make that commitment ahead of time, and it's pretty clear because it's something that's fair and later it starts to become blurry and I can see that maybe happening. How do you feel about that commitment I basically just made internally and didn't make to the person? I, I can't, the issue is I can't determine all of those, those intricate uh, what, what ifs. The issue is between you and God and ultimately I'm going to get to explain the airplane tickets like he is. I ultimately I'm going to get to explain uh, an issue that I think that I probably owe the money even though they don't think I owe the money. It's going to be me to explain that. I get to explain that to God. We come back to Thursday night. How then ought we to live? So what? If Christ comes back, what are you going to do about it, guys? If there's an issue in my life, am I going to deal with it? So I can't interpret where you are, and I, even if you gave me all the intricate details, I wouldn't interpret it. It's between you and God. Now, some of them are obvious. I have a a contract on a car, I default on the note and throw the car back on their front yard and said, you guys take care of it. I, I, those are easy. But there's a lot of subtle ones that are not easy you've got to deal with. But ultimately, it's your responsibility to be able to deal with it. Because we will get a chance to review that contract with God. Yes, sir, one more. I want to do one more. Cut. Cut and run. You're saying that God is more concerned with our integrity than accuracy? Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to think of the implications of that. God is very concerned with accuracy as well. I mean, you're, you're not saying that that's not important. I mean, he's a God that demands to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. How does that, does that affect your, your view of salvation and what's required to know? Or what are the implications of that statement? Okay, when, when I came to Christ, I did not confess sin before God. I came to God and said, my life is screwed up. I'm in deep trouble, and I'm on a collision course with bad deals. Now, I don't know how you do it or why you do it or when you do it or where you do it, but I know it's through Jesus, and I'm going to accept that solution, and I want to be your man. Now, my question was, was I saved or not? What's your answer? I have no idea. Okay, let me give you another question. Was I accurate in my theology? No, I wasn't accurate. But the integrity of my heart, I'm convinced I was saved. If I'd walked out of that door and been killed, I'd said I'd have been in heaven. I didn't know how to say the right words. I didn't have it all straightened out. But that heart was turned. I want to tell you it was turned. I knew exactly where I was. And God did too. And it's like he said, that guy's got a good heart. That's a good deal. He's in there. And I can go through illustration after illustration like that, that I only saw it through a glass dimly. I did not understand the truth. But the issue is, what do I do with what I got? And, when, and why do I do it? On the truth I do have, on the light that has been given to me, as Walt's been speaking about, and as Skip so eloquently spoke about yesterday, on that light I do have, what am I doing with it? 
So the issue is not do I have all the complete truth system. Do I understand all systematic theology and have all the trinities and everything in the right place in this matrix? But what I do have, what am I doing about it? Am I dealing in integrity off the truth I do know? Am I 100% accurate? I'll never be to the day I go to my grave. I will never know all the truth that I need to know. I'll always deal in inaccuracies. And that's my perception. Any other? Okay, here we go. <laughs> Hunker down. Okay, All right. Stick em. My question is, you're talking about commitments, and obviously a bankruptcy is easily pretty to identify the people where the money is due. What about the commitment of marriage, which is broken, and then you're now divorced? There's no way to rectify or to clear up. How do you handle the situation? You yeah, and, I, and, I, and I've thought a lot about that. Walt said something, you can't put a broken egg together. That is true. The Bible says clearly if you are remarried, you're never to divorce the woman and go back to the other wife. That marriage is gone. That's sealed. That's over with. There's another game going on. That does not, that does not ameliorate. That doesn't exonerate the issue that there's responsibility behind there to that child, etc. behind there. And I'm not real clear because I've not been divorced and I've not been to, I don't, don't know how to address it other than I think there's a commitment laced up in there, and you got a, uh, a mutation of God's strategy, and through uh, prayer and through accountability, etc., I think that's an issue you've got to be conscious of in your heart, though in no way am I suggesting a reversal and run back and try to resolve the issue. I think it's something over the years on how you deal with it from your heart is the, is the question before the house. I'm not giving you a clear answer, but I don't know that I know a clear answer. Other than the process is what's more important right now than anything else. Does that make sense? I can't define a product, but I can define a process. Yes, sir. You, know, uh, you threw something kind of out on the table there about the commitments that others have made, you know, like our fathers or grandfathers. It talks about sin, doesn't it? But you seem to put it in the contract basis. Are you equating that broken contracts of all kinds are as serious as the sins of the fathers? <coughs> I'm not sure I know what you're referencing. What did I say that you're referencing? Well, you, uh, talking about a contract that had been made, you know, before with David, and then some other things, maybe I'm getting this mixed up, that if our, you know, the sins of our fathers or grandfathers, if they had made some sort of commitment to God that we have no idea. Oh, made but Saul knew what he was doing. Oh, no, no, no. Saul was fully aware of the issue. That's where your misjudgment is. Saul knew he was under contract as king to fulfill this commandment of Israel to the Gibeonites. He was not. He was not done with the deal. I don't know of any contracts that my dad could make that could be passed on to me. In this one, it could be. And I'm not sure I know the illustration there. There might be some there. Yeah. Okay? My dad died early. He had a contract with my mother. Seems to me like I... Although, as a son, but I've got some inherent responsibility to my mother in honoring her oh. and caring for her and so on. Yeah, but isn't that, isn't that the contract from God, not from your father? Because the command is out of God to honor your parents. Now, uh, my mother, before she died, incurred some debt that has not been paid off. That contractually, am I obligated to it? But I feel in my heart I should do something about that then that, I, I, I pick up that contract irrespective of what's been written and I'm going to move on it. 
Now, I'm not saying that's your application. I'm saying that's my application. That's one in my own heart. Probably is. Yeah, because I put her in the home, because I knew mother was trying to. Uh, Mother and dad was a person, they always paid their bills, and that's what she would have done. And a lot of things that said that it's only legitimate that I pick that up. I know I pick up the obligations on my children legally. If they go out and do things and, and contract me up until a certain age, like 18 or so, I'm, I'm on the line for that. But we don't have many, I know, where we pass obligation from family to family. As such. But i got to tell you, guys, you're hunting for... Uh, you're hunting for rabbits when you chase those trails. You've got enough problems today right where you are. I mean, we got enough problems on the contracts and the commitments. And we work for companies and tell them that we're going to do certain things and we breach and go because it serves our purpose better. And we got enough contracts where we make dumb decisions on condos and decide, oh, the way out of this thing is I'm, I made a dumb decision. One of those deals in my youth. Let's get out of here. That's legal. See, those are the things that scare me. Those are the things that really scare me. One, you really want this? He didn't want it. All right. The last one is the census. Now, because of time, I'm not going to read the story of the census. But I will tell you about the story of the census. God sometimes, excuse me, David sometime in his last five years decides to take the census. And it says in both versions that there is a supernatural play going on here. That God provokes or tempts David into taking the census. And in another one of the versions, it speaks about that Solomon, I don't mean Solomon, Satan arouses David to the sin. But from the supernatural motivation, i.e., if you would hearken back to Job, you see that same phenomena going on. You get to see behind the curtain, the, the plying that's going on. On this side of the curtain, we see David taking the bait and doing the census. Now, notice, interestingly enough, that the good advice he got from his friend Joab, who he later tells his son to kill, Joab advises him, don't take the census. He says, Master, that your people be 100 times the number of people, but don't take the census. Somehow Joab senses the danger in David's strategy, but David doesn't listen to him. And David... In, uh, makes his people go out and take the census. Now, the story of the census is uh, an intriguing and very powerful story. In no way am I going to touch on even the outer edge of the census. I'm only going to touch on one aspect of the census. After he takes the census, what else? What transpires then? Uh, God comes down through, uh, through his... Uh, I don't remember what the prophet's name was. wasn't Nathan. Was it Nathan that time? I don't remember who the prophet was. Who? Who? Gad? And he says to him, uh, you've, uh, you've, you've angered God, and I'll give you three options. And here are the options. Uh, you'll be under captivity of another nation. Uh, you will uh, have a, uh, a famine. Or for three days, I'll turn the angel of death loose on the nation. You'll be under my, my wrath for three days. And David makes a pretty smart move in that time. He says, I'd rather trust the compassion of God than the compassion of another nation, the mercy of God than the mercy of another nation. Instead of turning myself unchecked to those things, I'll take God. And you remember the rest of the story. Then the angel of God comes down and kills 70,000 people, and he catches him. Uh, David sees him uh, in the, uh, in the, at this certain place, and they create an altar and call to God, and God stops the slaughter of the Israelites at this time. 
intriguing story, uh, an interesting story to read about how David goes through those decisions and everything. But the one I want to focus on with you is what is really going on with David. Why did David take the census? To me, that's what I want to poke on. And why is God hacked at that census? What did he get, cha what did he get chapped about? What's so bad about a census? I know that uh, Winston counts the number of people comes here every year. And that's just, we, we tend to do that. Why did he get burned about it? Well, let me tell you, I'm going to take supernatural liberties again with you. And I'm going to take some license with you. And let me tell you what I think's going on. David uh, grew weary in the battle. Instead of being the big guy that killed the giant, some wet-nosed teenager jumped on the scene and wiped out the giant. And then he had the audacity to tell David, we're going to take you home because we don't want your light snuffed out. And David said to himself, I know what he really wanted. He didn't want me around because I couldn't carry my weight anymore. I wasn't the hoss I used to be. I wasn't the tough guy I used to be. And now he says, I go back to the court, and I'm around the court walking around all the time, and I notice the guys think Solomon is smarter than me, and they seek out the counsel from Solomon. And I don't understand that. And I used to walk around, and all the women thought I was good-looking, and I really had a way with them. And the uh, queens just kind of look at me with a little disdain now. And I just, I'm not the guy I used to be. I am king, and yet, I'm really not king anymore. I am not the stud I used to be in all these things. What is going wrong? Well, I say to myself, David, I'm still king. And I'll prove I'm king, and I'm going to go out and count all my subjects. And that'll show me I'm a good king. Because look at all the people who depend on me being king. And I'm convinced that David gambled his significance on the number of noses he had in his congregation. And so he ordered the census because his worth was under tremendous challenge. And because in his younger years, he didn't sort out his self-worth and his significance. And so as he got his older years, he got trapped. And I want to tell you guys, as I deal with couples growing older, in my scheme of friendships, guys in their 60s and your parents are older, one of the struggles they have with is, where did all my worth go? I used to be somebody important. I ran this family. I had a job of significance. I was a worthwhile guy. And by the way, I was an outstanding Christian leader. Now all of a sudden, not only do my, I'm known by my kids' names, no longer am I important in business. Now I go to the church and they don't even care I'm around. And I have really no worth. And I think what was going through David's mind was, Am I really the stud I used to be? Am I really the king? Now, what, what was chapping God about all this? And I think what chapped God, though he doesn't say it accurately, I mean totally, is that God said, David, of all the things I've already done for you, why are you back researching this issue again? These are the times when you should blossom in your dependence upon me. But we're back reviewing this issue one more time. Now, guys, I look at God with the, uh, with the Israelite nation coming out of Egypt. And God is incredible in they have a problem and he gives them something. He has a problem and he gives them something. He has a problem and he gives them something. He solves problem after problem after problem. But there's a point in what he says to them, I'm not going to solve this one. You just get to depend on me. Enough is enough. You should have learned your lesson. You've seen me come to your rescue time and time again. I'm going to come to your rescue this time. I'm just not going to come as fast as I did the last time. But I'm still here. Nothing's changed. And so I'm going to call in my chip and I want to really see how dependent you are. 
And so David, instead of reaching for his dependence upon God, reaches back in the world for his significance. And I think that's what hacked God. That instead of realizing who he was, he ended up depending on himself to find out his worth. Now, I recently read a series of articles in a magazine saying that in America, the greatest craze we have today is self-esteem. That it is the panacea of all problems. It is purported that if we could just get the right self-esteem to the children of America, we would stop teenage pregnancies, dope, school dropout, and crime. Now, guys, that is being purported by our, psycho our psychiatry community into the governing bodies. That that is the answer that is before us. And they were talking about all the ways they're doing that. That all children are always told how great they are, irrespective of what they do. Everything is that they're great. That all is good. They say that if you only think you're a good, then act according because you're significant because of your birthright as an American. See, underneath all of that, it says man is inherently good and he is always getting better. Only culture corrupts. Do you, you want a scary test to run on your children sometime? Take them off alone and sit there and say, no, honey, I'll tell you what I'm, I'm going to do. I'm going to run an experiment. I want you to give me your answer. Let's play like that when you were born, that we put you on an island, and you didn't have to put up with mom and dad. And the television couldn't get corrupted. You didn't have to go to those trashy old schools. And somehow you got fed all during that time, and you just raised yourself. Tell me, would you be a sinner still, or would you be less a sinner, or would you be a more perfect person? You know what their answer is going to be? I'd be a more perfect person. Because we, I was interested in what Walt said, he's prayed for his children to understand his depravity. That's a prayer I've had for years. Because we fundamentally do not think we are depraved. We really believe culture does corrupt us. That fundamentally we are perfect. I've got a good mind and a good body, and if the system just wouldn't screw me up, I'd be in pretty good shape. Got some bad news. You entered dirty and you're going to exit dirty. Because the system corrupts, and because I'm always, I am good, I realize that significance is because of my achievement and my comparison. And the system teaches me that. Now, the Christian community is not out of this system itself either. Noted by the magazine that in the church scene today, that self-esteem is easier to sell than sin. I thought that was an interesting comment they made. That the church strategy today, and I'm not talking about your church, I'm just talking, this was their global viewpoint. That the local church is selling self-esteem as the issue that is at hand as opposed to the fact that you're a sinner. They said it's easier to sell to the congregation that you're good rather than to sell to the congregation. You've got a sick sin problem. I'll tell you, when I was a young man, numbers, you know I'm going to be 55, so my memory starts about when I'm 10. You go back 45 to 40 years ago, when I used to attend church, uh, Sin was an accepted thing. The congregation was evil. That man was going to do wrong. I remember the tent meetings to telling us that we were sinners. I've got to tell you, I've not seen a discussion like that in a number of years. I've not, I cannot tell you the last time I heard a sermon on hell. I can't tell you that. I don't think I've heard one. I can't tell you the last time I heard a sermon on self-denial, on denying yourself. All sermons are to get it. It's there for you to have. You are worthwhile. You deserve getting these good things. And the issue is feeling good is more important than a true view of your self-esteem. Now, Dotson, a man I respect, and I'm not after Dotson, says that the major problem in the church today 
is the issue of self-esteem. And I can, editorially, I've got to tell you, I disagree with it. I think the major problem is a valid esteem, a proper esteem of who we are. That our esteem does not come from our achievement, our recognition by other people. Our esteem comes from a recognition of our depravity and that God, for some reason, only known to him, has reached over and called me good. Now, I think we play an, in, an incredible role in this as parents by loving our children when they're sinners. But I think it is valid for us to let the children know that they're little sinners as we love them. I don't think we have to brag on them when they're in error. I don't think we can create an artificial grounds of how wonderful they are when those little tooties are just sinners like you and me. The issue is, can we deal with the truth of who we are? One of the major things I have, and I am not going to model myself in raising children, but one thing I think we do right with our kids is we work very hard on them to accept who they are and not try to be something you're not. God has equipped you in a unique way and be thankful for the way he has equipped you. Therefore, the question becomes before the house, where do we get our significance? Okay, where do we get our significance? Is this a new question of our generation? Is it something God has dealt with before? And I'd like for us to turn, not in, don't do it, but the thing I'm going to reference is Matthew 4, chapter 1 through 11, which is a study of significance, but really is a study of the temptations. Now, in the temptations, there is a study of Satan's strategy and Christ dealing with them. Have you ever thought that the temptations, we get a view of the best three shots Christ could take me, that the Satan could take at God, that's the best three he could figure out to do. He says, I'm going to stop all the time, and I'm going to let you take your three best shots. I'm going to stick my chin out there, and you can just hit me as hard as you want to. Come on, do it. Do it. Take your best shots, Satan. And we're getting to watch his best shots. Now, you may say, pooh, those are not very hefty shots. They're the best three Satan could figure out. And when you weigh them, they're kind of scary. I don't want to do a complete study on them as much as to say we get a unique look into the ways of God and the, and the strategy of Satan. Let's note two things from the encounter that leads us to a study on significance. The first thing, I'm only going to do two, everybody. Note that certain professed, <laughs> excuse me, Satan prefaced his first two temptations with, if you are the Son of God. His opening salvo is, if you're really who you say you are, Jesus, if you're really King Kong, then you could pull his trick. Satan's attack was directly on the identity of Christ. And I want to say one of our greatest points of vulnerability is our identity, who we are. He struck at not only his identity, but where he got his identity from. That's what was Satan's attack was. If you are who you say you are, then show me, is what Satan is inferring. Satan was challenging who Jesus was, who Jesus was, and Jesus' significance. This was the wedge Satan was trying to drive into Jesus' thinking, the wedge of doubt of who are you. But Jesus always understood the question is not who am I, but as the old cliche goes, whose am I? And he grasped whose he was, which determined who he was. And so it was one of the best, stra uh, best strategies we had. As I heard you guys debate with Skip Shantz yesterday. Underneath it all, there was a thin line that went something like this. Can I justify my worldly motivation with scriptural truth? That's what I heard you say. Because my significance comes from my accomplishment in business. 
And if you make me redefine my motivation, I'm going to be in a heck of a bucket of trouble. I'd rather entertain your truth and somehow have it in a hybrid fashion coexist with my motivation. And you're striking at the basis of my significance will go away, by the way, if I am not King Kong of the business marketplace. Our significance is our lifelong pursuit and drive, which can consume us, lead us into evil, and destroy us. Or our drive to self-esteem can bring us to a true relationship with God. We spend a great deal of physical, mental, and emotional, and spiritual energy defining our value, not only to ourselves, but also to those around us. We spend a lot of our time and energy proving to you, Tom, how wonderful I am. I spend a lot of time and energy walking, building an image, presenting myself so that you will think I'm an outstanding person. We burn up a lot of ourselves in that struggle. Not only does our personal life give testimony to this consuming pursuit, but the scripture warns of the danger, and Satan uses it as one of his major attack strategies. All right? Its significance is a key thing. Now, I'm going to take a small tangent off the side and jerk right back in just a moment. As I looked at the temptations, the first temptation that Satan went after Jesus with, after he hit him with, who are you? What was that? The next one. First one he did. You're hungry, so why don't you turn the rock into bread? Now, this is important, I think, to us in this room for the following reason. That survival is more important and is interesting. Strike that. Survival is a key to our significance. But we in this room don't see it because we live so far away from survival. Now, my son went to ranger camp this year, last year. Now, ranger camp is not a weekend Boy Scout camp. It is one tough camp. I didn't realize what they put those guys through. They deprive them of food. They deprive them of sleep. They deprive them physically. They never touches us. But I want to remind you that you're no more than an inch or two, and I can put you on the survival theme instantaneously. And if you don't believe me, watch yourself get sick and go to a hospital. You're relatively modest men. After two days in the hospital, how's your modesty going? Huh? It didn't matter to me. I just hang out there. After I've been catheterized a couple of times and jabbed and stabbed, it doesn't matter to me anymore. And I feel all my virility and my strength, and I get sick and I go to the hospital, and all I want to do is try to figure out how I can even feel somewhat decent. One day I'm King Kong, and two days later I'm barely able to try to figure out can I make it through. So we're only, we're only fooling ourselves on the survival issue. It is a key motivation and drive, but we're away from it, and what we have replaced survival with is success. That's what we've replaced it with. Now, we place significant success in our business life on an equal par. We say, if I'm successful, I am significant. And I want to say to you, this is not a valid pairing. Success is a consuming drive only because we have food and drink available. Let me put you in the survival level, and success won't mean a hill of beans to you. I could matter less if I was president of IBM when I was sick, or I was really in bad shape physically. But to take these things away, success would not be our drive. Note again that the first two thrusts of Satan was not, uh, was, the first two thrusts of Satan was, who are you, and get me some bread. That was his two thrusts. The truth is, the survival is a preeminent drive, but because of our affluent society, we do not experience the survival issue except in small, periodic vignettes. Because of this, we fight the straw man called success. My success 
becomes equal with significance. For hungry or not, we are all caught in this significance issue. As bread is survival for the body, our perception of our success becomes significance to our soul. And that is incorrect. A lot is written about touching on the concepts of significance, self-esteem books, etc. We know them all. But most of those are misleading, Christian or secular. To know ourselves and to understand our lives, we must always enhance our understanding of the ways of God. Our significance is always found in our intimacy with God. It is the only valid one. Our guys, you will take a, you will take a census. For we cannot understand our life outside of knowing God's thinking on things. God defines reality through his thinking. And only through his thinking can we understand ourselves. Therefore, to understand our significance, we must look to God to understand this important drive of success. In the scripture, God notes that we are significant and only significant because God declares us of significance. Our significance is a declaration by God, not our success. We define success from our work, the quality of our ministry, the boards we sit on, the size of our bank, the cars we drive, etc. But in Christ's economy, our significance is declared by the death and resurrection and the ascension of Christ. We are of value and significant in God's economy only because God declared us of significance. Our success will never get us there. If I make a million, I want to make two million. If I get two W's, I want four W's. And on and on and on. And as I noted in my own life, if I couldn't win in that sphere, I just moved over to that sphere. Because I didn't want really a true test of how good I was. I just wanted the W. And so I substitute my drive for significance and find it in success because that's artificial enough and I can manipulate it enough that I'm bound to find I'm of value. Yet in God's economy, the issue of success is always found, is always found in our concept of our depravity. How do we come to significance? And I'm going to take you down the track I went. This is not documented anywhere, nor do I have found any great truth where somebody has written this down. But I'm going to try to take you down what I went through. The world says to me, I am of value. I am the master of my destiny, so act so. You are of value as a birthright. You are good inherently. You're an outstanding person because you're an American. So just act so. You're the master of your destiny. Nobody will determine where you go. You can di dictate that. You can force that issue. They told me that truth is relative. Empowering is through self-interest. There is no truth. So you can make any standards you want to. You can change that standard so you look good. And by the way, you're empowered through your own self-interest. If you are hungry enough, you can make anything happen. I achieve. I compare. I win, thus I know I am good. Success is by comparison. Anywhere I put, I must compare. I can achieve, I compare that achievement, I thus know, consequently, I am good. And by the way, I go around and around in that circle. And here is where, if I couldn't achieve, and if I did achieve and I compared and somebody had a bigger set of chips, all I did is I just moved to another environment. Because I want to end up in a deal where my stack of chips were bigger than yours. That's all I wanted. Didn't matter, I only had $2, just so you only had $1. That's all that mattered. Now guys, that's true. Now, you may not be facing those same struggles, but this old sinner did. 
Remember, I am wonderful because others see it that way, and I feel it, and I say so. There's no doubt I'm wonderful. Because I achieve, I compare, I win, I know I'm good. Success is by comparison. I am motivated to get ahead. Dissatisfaction is my push. Discontentment is my drive. I am satisfied with my dissatisfaction. We are taught to be motivated through dissatisfaction, to change the things that dissatisfy us, to be motivated to get ahead, to be dissatisfied. It is valid to jump jobs because I am dissatisfied. Don't be content because content creates lethargy. Don't be content because that means you're getting to be mediocre. Don't get content because you will not strive for greatness. Don't get content because that inhibits your ability to excel. Our struggle with excellence, as I heard down in the earlier discussion yesterday, comes from the fact that if I am content, then I can't be excellent because I am motivated and pushed by my dissatisfaction and discontentment is my drive. And that's what the world's taught you guys. I'm not far off. I am not far wrong on that analysis. What is God's economy? I'm a sinner. I'm desperate. He loved me anyway. Opening salvo in your relationship to God is I'm a desperate sinner. See, that day I prayed, I knew I was desperate. I knew I had a problem I couldn't solve. And only if God rescued me was I going to get out of it. One reason you need to always be aware of your depravity is one, to be afraid of yourself, and two, to understand your incredible need for God. My greatest problems are when I get to a point that I'm convinced I don't need God anymore. And I slip in and out of that focus. That happens to me all the time. It is rooted, though, in the sense of my depravity, realizing that I am a man given any license will return to sin and to the vomit. Now, that's me. And Christianity is founded on the fact that I'm a sinner, I am desperate, and for some reason, he loved me anyway. He gave me truth and power, so be it. The world said truth is relative. There is no truth. Set your own standard. And you're empowered by your self-interest. God said, no, I gave you truth. You have a standard. I gave you Holy Spirit. You have power. So now you can be my man. You have truth, so act on it. Absolutely opposite what the world's been teaching you. And if you'll buy into the relative truth deal, you've undermined a key concept of God. If you don't have a truth base, you're being bombarded with knowledge which will only confuse you. If you don't have a truth grid, you have nothing, no standard to allow the preponderance of facts that are being pushed down upon you. You do not know how to ferret them out. Until you have a standard you are committed to, you will always be sway with the wind and be dashed around. I serve. I don't compare. I trust. I am loved. Success is in pleasing God. And parenthetically, I may never know how successful I am. I serve. I don't compare. I trust. I am loved. Success is by pleasing God. They ask a great missionary one time, now that you're 80 years of age, can you see the light at the end of the tunnel? And he says, no, I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But when I look back, I see the light in the tunnel. Great insight. He sees that God has done incredible things in his life. And he has the confidence to go on because he sees the history of where God has taken him. But he turns and he looks in the tunnel. It's still black. 
He doesn't know how tall he is. Now, I thought about that long. I thought that illustration was a great illustration. But the second thing it taught me was, what can I know? Well, I can know I'm in the right tunnel. The Holy Spirit bears witness to myself, to, to, uh, to me, to my, to my spirit. I can know I'm in the right tunnel. I can even know, and this gets into, I might get jumped on this one. I can even know I moved from this rock to this rock over the last 10 years. Because there's enough light when I look back, I see I marked the tunnel when I went through. So I know I'm making a little progress. But I don't know how fast I'm going. And I don't know where the end of the tunnel is. That is in faith. Success is in pleasing God. I'm in a world of ambiguity. I have nothing to compare to excepting the standard of Jesus, which I cannot reach. And all I can do is move forward, trusting the fact that God continues to love me. And he puts stock and value in me. And as I get older and all of the old trappings that fed me the information that I am good go away, my dependence should be so developed by that time that I don't have to take a census. And the problem, guys, sitting in this room today is why you don't want to go this route is because we're addicted to feedback. And this one feeds back and this one does not. This one continues to flash signals to you and this one doesn't. Because this one requires trust. Remember, I am depraved. Christ died for me and said that I was wonderful. Don't trust your achievements. I was voted as the outstanding salesman in the IBM Corporation in 1969. Did any of you guys know that? That, did, that doesn't impress you? You mean that achievement has gone for nothing? What a blow. Now, I have it tucked away in my closet, and every now and then when I get low and I don't think I'm making enough clothes, I go in my closet, close the door, and turn on the light and look at it. I said, I'm good, I'm good, I know I'm good. <laughs> Achievements are of value. The pursuit of excellence is of value, but not as a feedback to your value, only in the sense of pleasing God. I'm motivated by love and fear of God and by eternity. But I can't focus on them unless I am content. Let me say that again. I am motivated by love and fear of God and by eternity rewards. Those are the three motivational schemas that God gives you. Fear of Him, love of Him and love by Him, and rewards. That's what you get. Those are the three things He has given you to motivate you. But I can't focus on those. I cannot accept those unless I am content. That's the reason you cannot accept the motivation and you continue, you being Gail Jackson, I'm not talking to you, Gail Jackson continues to struggle with double-mindedness because unless I'm content that God is in control and I, what I have is good and from the grace of God, I cannot accept his motivation because I'm scrambling so hard to change the stupid condition so that I can have what I want. Do you understand what I just said? That's an incredible, that's a very critical issue. Okay, unless I understand that I am content that it is enough. Whatever God deals me is enough. Because of who God is, I can trust that is valued and wonderful. Contentment is a declaration. It's an acceptance of my environment and my circumstance. Until I accept that, I cannot be motivated by these. Because if I am motivated, if I am discontent or dissatisfied, I will always be struggling to straighten that out and get my feedback that way, and I can never be motivated here. How and where God has me defines my contentment and my acceptance of that. 
Guys, David took the census because he became, he gained vertigo. And he gained vertigo because his feedback system broke down on him. And when his feedback system broke down on him, he reached back and threw the switch one more time and went in the closet and said, yes, I am really wonderful. And God said, you have no reason to do that. For years and years and years I've poured my love out on you. I've declared my love for you. I have been with you and stuck with you. You need not return to your vomit. Let us not be men who get trapped in a census. I think the way we move in that direction is a daily, weekly, monthly, annual review of our depravity. As I said the first night, review my salvation so that I realize how great it is so that I will always revel in my worth as God declared it. Guys, it's an incredible worth. He loves you beyond your wildest dreams. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this time and this insight into David. I know I've been at it inadequate, God, and I pray that you will uh, overpower my mistakes and my errors and my bad judgments. And I pray, God, that you will bless these men with insights that will be beneficial to them. I pray that in the year to come, they will be men who are more serious about what they allow themselves to be committed to, that they are men of integrity, and that there are men who seek ways to serve you and glorify your name. I pray that each one of these men, God, will feel and sense the word in their life and understand the incredible love and devotion and commitment you have to all of us. Boy, God, I really pray that for myself. And the struggles I'm going through as a man, I pray, God, that I will ferret out my errors and realize that I should be a man of integrity and that I can be that because, God, you're in control of my destiny. You're in control of my circumstance. And, God, I thank you for where you brought me. And I thank you, God, where you're taking me. Amen. Bye-bye. <laughs>